0: I next met with Ms. Beth E.B. Sandy and Dr. Corey Langer, and to begin, they discussed a 72-year-old woman in their practice with advanced squamous cell cancer. So this is a heavy
1: smoker, current smoker, which is actually pretty rare in our practice. Most of our patients are former smokers, presented initially with locally advanced disease. There was no evidence of metastatic spread and was treated with a fairly standard combined chemoradiation combination and did well. There was mark reduction in the primary and lymph nodes that lasted at least two years. And then over time, new nodules appeared in both lungs. And because she was asymptomatic and these seemed to be smoldering, we elected to observe for a time. So that even in the face of recurrence or presumed recurrence, there are periods where we won't necessarily automatically intervene with uh, new treatment. More recently, not that recently, but over uh, about a six-month period, the tumor started to grow at a faster pace, up to about a centimeter and a half to two centimeters. And at that point, we elected to do a transthoracic fine needle aspirate, which confirmed recurrence of the original tumor, in this case, squamous cell. And because I felt disease was starting to progress and it was only a matter of time, perhaps a short time before this patient became more symptomatic, at that point we initiated systemic chemotherapy with carboplatin and in her case with nanoparticle albumin bound paclitaxel, which we're giving weekly.
0: So can you talk about how you choose between using regular cremaphore paclitaxel and NAB paclitaxel, Corey, and why in this lady you decided to use NAB? So it is somewhat controversial. It's clearly a lot more expensive,
1: but there are data, phase three data, that have compared the weekly regimen to the more conventional solvent-based paclitaxel every three weeks in combination with identical doses of carboplatin. And there are two groups that seem to have a disproportionate benefit. Number one, those with squamous cell carcinoma have considerably higher response rates to the NAB-paclitaxel even though that hasn't translated into either a progression for your overall survival benefit. And then in a subset analysis, those over 70 appeared to have not just a response benefit, but a survival benefit of about nine months. Now, granted, that was a retrospective analysis, what we call a post hoc analysis. But this individual is both over 70 and also has squamous cell carcinoma. So there are two points why I ultimately decided to pick NAB-paclitaxel. I think you could be Certainly justified in picking regular paclitaxel or in the case of squamous cell gemcitabine in combination with platinum. Now how is
0: she tolerating the treatment?
1: Very well. Minor neuropathy, which at least in my experience seems to be a bit less with this sort of weekly regimen, certainly a lot less than we'd see with the conventional Q3 week, 200 per meter squared. Some hair loss, not complete though. Again, I think because of the weekly regimen, although it's a lot more than she had had previously and otherwise really no toxicity. And she's having a clear response. And the big issue, particularly after four cycles is what to do squamous cell, we don't generally have standard maintenance treatments. Pemetrexed is contraindicated in squamous histology, or latinib has been looked at, but we don't usually associate a with a maintenance strategy, although it would certainly be an option. So should we observe? Should we give another two cycles of NABPAC and CARBO and then reassess and sort of table this discussion, or should we continue? perhaps the NABPAC alone. And there's actually a ongoing randomized trial that's asking this question specifically in squamous cell, giving four cycles of NABPAC carbo
0: and then randomizing to a NABPAC or observation. Beth, what's your experience with these regimens containing NABPAC otaxel?
2: So actually, I've had surprising good luck with this regimen. It seems like the neuropathy is significantly less. And if you look back at that phase three clinical trial, the neuropathy was indeed less. Now, That's taking into account that the paclitaxel arm was a Q3 week. A large dose, right. What they also saw is that the time to improvement once you hold the drug was significantly better in the NAB paclitaxel arm. So in patients who did develop a significant neuropathy, the time that it took for that neuropathy to improve was much less for the NAB paclitaxel arm than it was for the paclitaxel arm. And that can come into play for a patient like this who, this is first-line treatment, and, you know, she may have time off of treatment, and if she has a severe neuropathy that lasts a long time that can impact her quality of life. So I certainly can say that I've seen less neuropathy with the drug.
1: Right now we're leaning toward giving two more cycles and then probably observing, particularly since this individual's had a very good response. And we could always go back to a regimen of this sort or something similar, if and when she starts to have disease progression.
0: So another difference between NAB and crema 4-paclitaxel with the NAB, corticosteroids are not used, Beth. And, and in what situations is that a particular advantage?
2: several. Certainly in a diabetic patient, this is preferable. So not having to give any, and I'm none. I mean, technically, if you wanted to give, you know, four or eight milligrams as a an anti-emetic because it's considered a low emetogenic chemotherapy, you could, but you don't have to. And typically I don't. Typically I don't pre-medicate doesn't require steroids, doesn't require, you know, diphenhydramine, doesn't require any of those medications to prevent the typical allergic reaction that you can potentially see with the solvent based paclitaxel.
1: It's also given faster.
2: Yeah, the infusion rate is faster as well, which is nice. But yeah, there's also patients that just don't tolerate steroids well, you know, it just makes them anxious, you know, move around, jittery. And again, patients don't miss that.
0: So, I want to take a step back and talk about a number of other issues related to the clinical challenges of patients like this one with advanced lung cancer, beginning with the assessment of patients related to psychosocial issues. How do you go about this at the first diagnosis, as with this lady?
2: So, you know, a lot of it can't be done in that very first visit. There's so much information that gets put to patients in the very first visit that they're there. So I believe, you know, within follow-up visits, we talked to her about what this means in the long term. She was offered counseling. We have counselors for our cancer patients in the cancer center, but she declined that. She didn't feel like that was something that she needed.
0: An interesting issue related to psychosocial status is the research that's been done on the early use of palliative care, even at first diagnosis, showing a benefit Beth, any thoughts?
2: I think that data is incredibly intriguing, even suggesting a survival benefit for patients who seek early palliative care in addition to seeing their primary oncologist. So we do have a palliative care program, and I found it tremendously helpful for our patients. The patients I'm likely to refer to that program are patients who are having really any symptom, certainly pain and shortness of breath would be the first two, that I will often add the palliative care doctors onto our team, as well as patients who are just having difficulty that you can tell by talking to them, they're having difficulty grasping or coping with the diagnosis or having difficulty talking about the long-term implications or an advanced directive that they you know, haven't filled out or don't want to talk about. And again, the palliative care doctor is there for all of those things. So our patients have found it tremendously helpful. I'll be honest, at first I was skeptical, oh, do they really need to see another doctor? But it's really a great addition.
0: Another important psychosocial issue in oncology is the caregiver, people like you two. Beth, in spite of all the recent advances in lung cancer, most patients still die of the disease. How do you take care of yourself?
2: Well, you know, it's funny. Before we did this interview, I was talking to Dr. Langer, and I said, I love patient care. I really do. And it's something that I enjoy, being able to help patients. So, you know, how do I take care of myself? I I don't, I don't talk about it when I go home. I really don't.
1: So I pretty much share the same approach. I remind myself that I started practice in an era when the typical median survival was six months. It was rare to see patients live a year, let alone two years. And now typically we are seeing patients live a year and frequently two, three, and four years. So that bucks me up. I also remind myself that metastatic lung cancer with rare exception is still a fatal illness and I have to be prepared for it. It's important to be emotionally involved but not overly involved and to set limits. I too try my best not to take it home. Sometimes it does haunt you. I find one very useful mechanism that we haven't really talked about, but certainly familiar to anyone listening, is the family meeting. I wish there was more science and articles on how to conduct that. I think that's a crucial issue, particularly when patients are doing poorly or we anticipate that they'll start doing poorly. It's an exhausting exercise, but it's an absolutely essential Exercise and it's imperative that you get as much of the family present as possible so they all hear the same thing. They all have an opportunity to ask questions that other family members hear, so we don't play the game of telephone, and that all ancillary services are available so that palliative care and hospice and social work and nursing and any other and nutrition, any other team that is potentially involved in the patient's care can be present. Family meetings can last 20 minutes, they can last an hour or more, sometimes several hours. But it gets all the cards on the table, and ultimately, even though it's exhausting, I find it cathartic.
0: So another issue that often comes up with the patients with advanced disease is management of the bone mets. Corey, these patients usually receive either the bisphosphonate zoledronic acid or the rank ligand inhibitor denosumab. How do you explain this to patients? So I tell patients that this is sort of an adjunctive part of their treatment, that
1: it may or may not have any benefit on their long-term survival, but it prevents what we euphemistically call skeletal-related events, so any complication having to do with the bone, whether it's pain or fracture or nerve impingement or need for radiation. So it has become a fairly standard additional approach that we employ Although dental work or osteonecrosis of the jaw, which we do see from time to time, will often make us stop this agent or this class of agents.
0: And can you talk a little bit more about that, Beth, in terms of how you explain to people what osteonecrosis of the jaw is and what happens when it occurs?
2: So what I would explain, first of all, to a patient who has no dental issues that's going to start the drug is that it's extremely rare in the setting of not having any dental problems or dental work done while on the drug. But if they require a tooth extraction, which I feel like Somehow all my patients, once they start chemotherapy or some kind of treatment, suddenly develop dental issues and require root canals and things. But if that occurs, we prefer to stop the drug and hold it for a pretty long period of time. These drugs hang around in the body for a very long period of time. So it's not clear how long they should be off and how long they should remain off after dental work. But I wanna keep them off a fair amount of time because again, I explained to them, this drug is not, as we know of, therapeutic at killing your cancer cells. It's preventing skeletal related events. And I would much rather hold the drug and not cause a major infection or necrosis of your jaw that usually doesn't heal by using these drugs. So I'd rather be more conservative at holding the drug when dealing with this. But I do explain to them, it's pretty rare to occur in the setting of you not having a dental problem or dental work done.
1: And I point out that particularly individuals who are getting oral treatment of the sort that I will preferentially use the subcutaneous injection, the denosumab, whereas patients who are receiving intravenous chemotherapy, I tend to use zolendronic acid.
0: So I'm going to finish out, actually, with another topic and just ask you to comment on this first, Corey, which is immunotherapy of lung cancer. This has really sort of jumped out in front of us all of a sudden, and I'm curious what your experiences are and what are the agents right now that are being looked at in lung cancer? So immunotherapy has really enjoyed a major
1: resurgence dating back to the era of beta-interferon IL-2. I remember when immunotherapy was thought to be the answer to cancer, and then we actually started applying it to patients with advanced non-small cell and melanoma and renal, and it was inordinately toxic. The newer generation of immunotherapeutic agents that target PD-1 and PD-L1, and to make it very simple, sort of unblock the immune system, enable T-cells to recognize cancers, to keep cancer cells from actually evading the immune system, clearly have a role. They're very promising, but... I'm going to be blunt. I think the hype has exceeded the hope. The response rates, by and large, are in the 15 to 20 percent range. There clearly is an association between the presence of antigen PDL1 on tumors. Those who have that are likely to have higher response rates, although it's not a one for one association as we see with the molecular abnormalities. And in fact, my best response to this class of agents is a gentleman who managed to snag the last slot on a phase one study of Mk3475, the drug's now called pembrolizumab. And his response has lasted over 14 months, and only just now he's starting to have some degree of disease progression. Many folks, unfortunately, progress very quickly, within six to eight weeks, and complicating factors is the recognition that some of these individuals may have pseudoprogression, that they may appear to be progressing, but in fact, over time, four or six months, that pseudoprogression may actually turn into response. So, is it real? Or isn't it? And that complicates our assessment of these individuals. This newest generation, pd one pdl one inhibitors, fairly non-toxic. Unlike ipilimumab, unlike the CTLA-4 inhibitors, we're not seeing the degree of autoimmune hypersensitivity reactions, the GI toxicity, the pituitary toxicity the hepatic toxicity that our colleagues who deal with melanoma have typically seen. There are studies now combining these agents with just about everything, with chemotherapy, with TKIs, with CTLA-4 inhibitors, but it remains to be seen whether any of these agents will necessarily work better in combination. There are exciting studies, one of which we're participating in the second-line setting, comparing these agents to standard chemotherapy, But I worry that we may have set expectations a bit high, that these drugs are not a panacea. They are another arrow in our therapeutic quiver.
0: So the one thing I have heard, Beth, that seems encouraging about these agents is that when you do see a response, they can often be fairly long-lived. Have you seen any patients who benefited by this treatment strategy? And what kind of side effects have you observed?
2: So we've actually treated several patients with this drug and with the pembrolizumab, which is the drug that we have in clinical trial. And we had a while that we didn't see any responses. And then we do have a patient who is responding now. He hasn't been on it long enough for me to say that it's been a real long time, but he had a significant response after the first, I guess, three cycles. You do a scan after three and then after every two. So it's been about four months now that he's been responding. So I haven't had a super long time to see. But he's my first true, what I would say, real responder. And I think that it seems so far that it's lasted on this.
1: And it's been well tolerated.
2: Yeah, very well tolerated. I can't say that really any of the patients that I've treated have had any significant toxicity at all very well tolerated. I've
1: been amazed by the relative lack of toxicity, including those who didn't really have much of a benefit, perhaps some minor degree of fatigue. We have seen some hypothyroidism, but that's almost a paper toxicity as easily treated with levothyroxine. My gentleman, as I mentioned, has a response that's probably just starting to end. It's lasted 13 to 14 months, but it's important to put this in context. He has metastatic squamous cell. He had received pretty much all standard chemotherapy. He had received as much radiation as he could get to the chest without exacerbating or causing untoward pulmonary damage. And to have this degree of response to see his shortness of breath and cough completely disappear without toxicity has been incredibly gratifying. I just wish I could see it in more patients.
0: So one final issue I want to bring up is that recently we saw the approval of yet another agent in lung cancer specifically ramucirumab the monoclonal antibody to the vegf receptor that already is approved in gastric cancer both with and without chemotherapy In lung cancer, Imusirumab combined with docetaxel as second-line treatment in both squamous and non-squamous cancer, we saw a modest but statistically significant improvement in both overall and progression-free survival without major toxicity issues. Any comments, Corey? So
1: this is the second angiogenesis inhibitor to be approved in advanced non-small cell. It does not target the ligand, but rather the receptor. This was a second-line trial, all comers, so it included not just adenocarcinoma but squamous cell, which were not enrolled in the original ECOG 4599 trial, which had led to Bev's approval. And here, well over a thousand patients were randomized to standard second-line treatment, docetaxel, either alone or in combination with ramucirumab, and there was a credible, modest, statistically significant, I'd argue, still clinically meaningful improvement in response rate. Progression free survival, and most importantly, in overall survival. In fact, the overall survival observed was not too far off from that observed with Bev in the original phase three. So I think, with the tincture of time, it's been 12, 13 years since Bev's approval, we've seen generally better patients getting onto these second line trials. It was a huge trial. I think cynics would argue well, is one and a half month improvement really all that meaningful, particularly for the cost of the drug? But if you look at progress in non-small cell, it's been rampant incrementalism for the last 25 years, with a few exceptions, mostly in the era of molecular targets. So for those who are giving PEM-carbo up front without bevacizumab, this would not be an illogical combination in the second line, giving ramucirumab with docetaxel.
0: So Bev is contraindicated in patients with squamous cell cancer of the lung because of the potential risk of hemoptysis in these patients. What about ramucirumab in squamous cell? I would consider it in squamous. They were included in the study.
1: It is really the first time in the second-line setting where we've seen that triad of improvement in response PFS and overall survival for a second agent added to standard chemo. So this is, it's a standout trial in that regard. Granted, the benefits are modest, but not too much different from what we observe with bevacizumab originally.